Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Mikhail Gorbachev, the first president of the Soviet Union, has died. He was 91. He passed yesterday. For insight into this and some other issues, let's turn to our first guest. He works with Tell the Word, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He was a CIA analyst for 27 years. He's on the steering group of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. Your thoughts on the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev? Well, he was a, a major historical figure, one of the one of the most major, if it can be put that way, of the last century. Uh, it was he that changed the Soviet Union into a Russia that is still seeking its place in Western Europe and the rest of the world. Um, I had a chance to actually meet him after analyzing the heck out of him during the 80s when I was briefing um, President Reagan's chief national security advisors. This is no good digression, really. This is precisely the time that Gorbachev came into uh, prominence. Uh, 81 to 85, Reagan's first term. And I had the privilege, I mean, it was the best duty one could imagine, uh, briefing uh, Reagan's um, major advisors on foreign policy, including Vice President Bush, uh, Secretary of State George Shultz, and Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger, and one-on-one, early, early in the morning, using the president's daily brief, and then updating it as uh, as necessary. The president himself preferred to sleep in. Uh, he got the briefing from those same people around 1130 uh, that same morning. Now, as I say, this is precisely the time, 81 to 85, that Gorbachev was, uh, was emerging and nobody knew anything about him. It was really quite amazing. He was a typical chinovnik, a little bureaucrat in the Soviet system. Uh, He was a devoted communist, we all believed. And the only time he had been in the West was he made a trip to Canada. And so we we flooded our Canadian colleagues with requests. What was he like? What's he like? (laughs) And they said, you know, he's different. I mean, I mean, he's very different. Uh, not only in his mannerisms, but he seems to be a pretty open fellow. Well, that was our first hint as, as a CIA analyst. Then we watched what happened on the pages of Pravda, Izvestia, a criticism of uh, regional party figures, uh, open, well, the openness that characterized his period of glasnost and perist- perestroika. So we began to think, well, you know, this, this may be the real deal. Let's let's not foreclose the option that he's just another another commie, a clever commie. Uh, this was 
This was uh, Weinberger, Secretary of Defense. This was my titular boss, uh, uh, Robert Gates, protege of um, William Casey, head of the CIA. They were all telling Reagan, ah, you know, uh, the Soviet foreign policy will never, never, ever give up power peacefully. Uh, it'll just keep going on. And don't be fooled by this Gorbachev. It's just a more clever commie, but a commie nonetheless. A commie was a commie. So here I was in the unique position of meeting these people one-on-one. -on -one. And Weinberger knew enough about my experience in Russia uh, that he didn't ask me many questions, but George Shultz did. And so did Vice President George H.W. Bush, whom I knew from when he worked at the CIA. I worked directly under him, and then I briefed him every other morning. So when they asked me, you know, what is this business about Gorbachev? Uh, I would say, well, do you want my personal opinion? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's what we want. I said, he's the real deal. And uh, the colleagues in the bowels of the agency that I respect and that are not being censored <clears throat> believe the same thing. So it was really, really exciting times. And of course, toward the end of my tenure briefing, 1985, Gorbachev not only became head of the Soviet Communist Party, but head of the president, actually, the first president of the Soviet Union. Now, a little footnote here. Uh, when, I, when I met Gorbachev, it was in Moscow at a very large dinner at which uh, President Putin showed up. Uh, we were all waiting for it to start, and I saw Gorbachev walk in with one other person to help him. He was a little feeble at the time. <laughs> I, I ran right over and I introduced myself. And I told him I had worked at the CIA, and the name Robert Gates came up. Now, as you may remember, <laughs> he was in the branch that I ran in the 70s. He was a problem. Uh, he was so overtly, well, ambitious that he was a destructive influence in the branch. And he was a hardcore, you know, he, he, he trimmed his sails to what, Mr. Casey, when he came in, wanted, and that was the Russians were evil incarnate. So when I mentioned Robert Gates, Gorbachev froze. And what a, what a nice little cordial conversation became very abruptly ended with Gorbachev saying, <laughs> which means, yeah, give him my greetings. <laughs> and he sat down. And I had no more, no more contact with, you know, with Gorbachev. Now, the last little thing I'll say here is that when, when Gates wrote his book, his autobiography or whatever, his memoirs on, he called it On Duty, right? Now, uh, what he said was that, uh, you know, it was not his business. I'll quote him. He says, uh, you know, it's, it's not my job. Uh, to make the Russians happy. That was, quote, not on my, not exactly on my to-do list, end quote. So what do we have? We have cruise missiles on U.S. ships going into the Black Sea. And K-2 
capsules, holes in the ground for those same cruise missiles already in Romania, going into Poland, and Biden actually promised not to put them in Ukrainian and then reneged on that promise. So here we are, it's Robert Gates saying, it's not exactly on my to-do list to make the Russians happy. And here we have claims that Putin's reaction to the emplacement of these medium range ballistic missiles, giving him five to seven minutes warning time, that that was unprovoked, what, what, uh, what Putin did. Now, was it illegal? I'll leave that to the legal scholars. Was it provoked? Of course it was provoked. It was just as provoked as anything else. And we have Robert Gates explaining why it was provoked, saying, it's not my job, or as he said, uh, making the Russians happy. Was that exactly on my to-do list? And so here we are with a war in Ukraine provoked by the by the likes of Robert Gates and Bill Casey, his boss and mine. Uh, let's. Uh, I'd like to talk about something also that uh, you have talked about, uh, you have discussed much. Um, Maria Zakharova, she's a Russian foreign ministry spokesman, recently said, we consider the August 28th passage of two U.S. Navy ships through the waters of Taiwan Strait precisely as a new provocation, as part of a chain of provocations directed at the comprehensive containment of Beijing, additionally pressure on it and the destabilization of the situation in the region uh, uh, in general. Ray, your thoughts on, uh, on on what this all means? Well, you know my position on how the uh, Russian-Chinese relationship has changed the world. Uh, it's a new balance of power. It's two against one, where it used to be a trilateral kind of relationship. So what's interesting here is that Maria Zakharova, the uh, foreign ministry spokeswoman, uh, raises this gratuitously and sort of makes it uh, makes it even more pointed than the Chinese themselves. In other words, she says it's, it's a provocation. What did the Chinese say? Well, they said, well, these two old warships, uh, uh, they, they, they were just troublemakers. And <laughs> my Chinese analyst friends suggest that the U.S. Navy would just as soon have them scuttled and sit on the bottom of the Taiwan Strait because they were aging and it would spare the Navy the expense of scuttling these old cruisers. Well, that might not be the case. But the Chinese did not make a big deal of this. I was a little surprised at that. But the Russians did. So go figure. The Russians are more Chinese in this respect than the Chinese themselves. Dangerous game. Russian diplomat slams Europe's position on Zafiroza nuclear plant. Uh, she pointed out that the out-of-control Kiev regime has gone as far as using the nuclear plant as a tool for blackmail. Well, I have to say, Wilmer, I'm glad you raised that. This is the most urgent problem. I am hoping that the IAEA inspectors will be able to arrive in Zaporizhia uh, today as, as predicted. But there are all kinds of problems with their travel, and there are all kinds of shelling still going on. Now, the Russians control the plant. Who's doing the shellings? Um, <laughs> I'll leave it to your – I mean, a second grader could have figured out that the Russians are controlling the plant, and it's being shelled from the outside. Uh, would the Russians be shelling the plant? I don't think so. <laughs> so this is – these are crazy people. And when uh, when – 
the Kiev regime is described as out of control, as Zakharova warned. Well, I'm afraid she's right. Uh, and, you know, if they go down, it's sort of like the Samson option. You know, you, you drag the pillars down with you. And the worst is that Russia is winning. Russia is winning in not only Donbass, but in the southern part of Ukraine. This little Ukrainian government offensive has fizzled out. And what are the, what I don't call them Nazis, I call them hard right nationalist people that are running the key of government, what are they going to do? Are they going to fold their tents like an Arab and silently steal away? I think Sakharova and others are equally worried that they'll pull those pillars down with a Samson, op Samson option, put a hole in one of those uh, reactors, and then they'll be held to pay. The whole thing will change. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You're most welcome. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. TASS reports Gazprom announces complete halt in supplies via Nord Stream due to repairs. The supply of Russian gas through the Nord Stream gas pipeline has been completely stopped. Repairs are starting today at the only remaining gas pumping unit at Porta Vaya Compressor Station, Gazprom said in a statement. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author and journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Robert Fantina, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So supply via Nord Stream has been completely stopped today. Scheduled preventative work is starting at the gas pumping unit. Your thoughts, Robert Fantina? Well, we have to remember that uh, this this slowdown occurred because of uh, of the sanctions, and that uh, Russia has been unable to get the repairs for its various uh, uh, generators and so on that are required for this. So now there's only one turbine working, and that one needs to be needs to be maintained. So when that's shut down for maintenance, it means that there's no gas getting through. So this is going. This is continuing to cause a severe issue for. Uh, European countries. Uh, let me read something to you that the French foreign minister said about a week or so after the uh, special military operation started. He said, and I quote, we're waging an all-out economic and financial war on Russia. We will cause the collapse of the Russian economy. The Russian people will also pay the price. If one were suspicious, Robert, and one were to think, perhaps the Russians are yeah, skirting around the edges of the truth a little bit. Perhaps they have problems with turbines and things like that. But perhaps some of this is payback. What could I say? If I punch Robert, 
I don't expect Robert to punch back. At some point, he's going to take a swing back. And it seems to me that they've thrown everything they could at Russia, and now they're shocked that Russia, either they're having real problems with turbines or they're just swinging back. Who knows? Maybe some combination of both. Robert? It's it's very true. The uh, European, European nations, uh, the United States, uh, have issued these strong, crippling sanctions against Russia, but they still want Russian gas. And there comes a time when Russia is going to say, as you said, you know, someone is punching them, they're going to punch back, they're going to hit back. And the main tool they have for doing so is their gas supplies. So they can cut off the gas supplies and cripple the economies of the countries of the European Union, greatly damage the United States and Canada. Uh, and this is the only thing that they have have left to do, and they're, they're going to use it. Russia is not going to... The, the United States and uh, the European nations, especially the United States, always believe that sanctions will cause the uh, economy of the sanctioned nation to falter. The people rise up against that nation and demand change. This doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It's not working in Iran. It hasn't worked for decades in, in Cuba, and it's certainly going to work in Russia. The, these governments will do what they can to protect their people and fight against the countries that are, are sanctioning them. Robert, I, I remember it was either on the campaign trail in 2020 or it was shortly after Biden was sworn in and the discussion was Nord Stream 2. And Biden said, and we talked about talked about this on this show, Biden said, we cannot allow Russia to use natural gas as a political or military weapon. Therefore, we are not going to allow Nord Stream 2 to be turned up. It seems as, that, as though that was not so much fact as it was projection, because that's all the Biden administration has done tried to use sanctions against natural gas as a political weapon, and it has turned out that all it's doing is biting Europe in the butt. And, and we see this again and again. A very interesting question that comes from, from your statement is, why does the United States feel, the United States government feel, that it can decide what Russia can and cannot do, what Iran can and cannot do, what these other countries in the world can and cannot do. Who is the United States to decide this? And as you so clearly pointed out, the United States government under Joe Biden made this proclamation, and now he or the U.S. and uh, European countries are suffering because of it. it. As you said, it comes back to bite in the butt every single time. When you look at this now... How it ends, you know, nobody knows. But as the winter comes, you have to suspect <laughs> that either Europe is going to go to Russia and say, we need a deal. And there ain't no guarantee Russia's going to say, OK, or they will cease to exist as a civilization. Because when people have don't have food and warmth and it gets cold in northern Europe, they will um, they'll pretty much go berserk and, and take the country apart brick by brick. And it's projected that this is going to be a colder than normal winter. Yeah, it's going to be hotter than normal in Berlin and Paris. Your thoughts, uh, Robert? That's true. Uh, these 
politicians that ignore uh, climate change are going to see the result when there's a, a much colder winter and there's a limited amount of, of gas to, to provide heat for homes and businesses. This is going to be a major issue if it's not resolved in advance. And uh, Russia is in the driver's seat in this. Russia can say, okay, we're not going to uh, sell any more gas. Certainly that will be uh, uh, detrimental to the uh, Russian economy. But what does Russia have to lose if, if uh, the United States and comes to the European Union are all saying, oh, we don't want to do business with you, we don't want to do business with you, and then suddenly, oh, yeah, we want to do business with you. Russia is in the driver's seat. Can, can, can name its price and can say yes or no. EU turns to China for surplus LNG. This is from the Financial Times, as reported through RT. EU countries have been increasingly boosting shortages with surplus Chinese liquefied natural gas purchased in the spot market. Uh, According to an article, China, the globe's largest LNG buyer, has been reselling some of its excess volumes on the international market and... Uh, so, Robert, the sanctions that the United States has imposed, Russia is still able to sell its product at a discounted rate, but it is still making tremendous profit. China is buying that discounted gas, selling it at a profit on the spot market. EU countries are now able to shore up some of their shortages, not all, but some. So everybody's getting what they need. It's just costing a hell of a lot more. And it's, and it's all unnecessary. It's all unnecessary. It's costing a lot more, and, it's, uh, and, and there's no guarantee that it's going to be enough. Right now, uh, China has a, a large amount of surplus uh, natural gas because uh, there's still COVID restrictions and, and travel and so on hasn't picked up to, to what it was. But there's going to come a time when China's going to need all the LNG that it has, and these other countries are going to be unable to buy it. And then we're going to have more problems. They're going to be going uh, back to Russia trying to make some kind of a deal. Garland, if this were a play, I would say, welcome to Kabuki Gas Theater. Because that's that's what this is. Go ahead, man. So the U.K. may be setting up warm banks. We're now hearing that um, Germany is looking at doing the same thing, setting up schools and areas like that where people who can't be warm in their actual homes have to huddle together like puppies in public spaces. Um, But, you know, the thing about it is if you look at it, that even is a rosy picture. Because that implies that they're going to have electricity for the warm banks. This scenario could be so dire that you have large swaths, literally millions of people who don't have electricity, which means your pipes burst. The level of economic destruction that is potential in this winter, unfathomable for this uh, for this um, winter. Your thoughts? Yes. Even the idea that these countries are are looking to create these warm banks, uh, community centers, uh, libraries, and so on, where people can go to be warm. This is, what, what is this? This isn't the way uh, people expect to operate. People expect to turn up their heat and the radiators get warm and, and, and they're comfortable. But this the fact that these governments are looking at these potential warm banks is astounding in and of itself. And 
Grant, as you mentioned, there may not be enough uh, uh, gas to to provide heating, even for these warm banks. What's going to happen then? Robert, talk a little bit about the power of the narrative here, because there was a story yesterday about this woman who owns this pub in Ireland, and she got this astronomical heating bill, like $3,000 for, for two months. And so she posts this picture of the heating bill, and she's screaming about how much this costs, but she's got a Uf- Ukrainian flag what do you call those things, Garland? Um, uh, uh, emoji, emblem, yeah, emoji, yeah, emoji. Uh, right, yeah. yeah, so, so th- they're buying this whole b- lie. Biden tells the American people this is Putin's gas price hike, and they believe that this is the hit they have to take to protect Ukrainian democracy when it was the United States in 2014 that went in with the Maidan coup and overthrew the democratically elected government mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the, the U.S. government is always lying. It's always lying about uh, any of its uh, geopolitical goals. The fact that overthrew the government of Ukraine, the democratic government, is something that they're not talking about now. They're only talking about uh, Russia invading Ukraine, how terrible that is. Not looking at all the, the situations regarding NATO and how NATO has been encroaching closer and closer to, um, to Russia. Not looking at the fact that the government of Ukraine is hardly democratic. Uh, not looking at the fact that uh, there are many Ukrainians who are supporting the war and want to, want to join Russia. There's, there's so much involved. Uh, now, certainly the war is wrong. The war, the war, war should not happen. Uh, but the United States is hiding behind its own lies to convince a gullible public that uh, Russia is, as it always is, the big bad wolf, and that uh, any problems that come due to uh, heating issues uh, or uh, uh, break down the economy within Europe or the United States, or all the responsibility of of Russia, not taking on themselves or the United States any responsibility for the sanctions that it has implemented that are going to cause these problems that are already causing them. I think at some point it gets to a point where people are concerned about the basics and they're going to kind of either forget about Ukraine or start, um, you know, distrusting what they're being told as the pain increases. We've got one minute. Yes, the people aren't. People want to have food on their table. They want to have heat. They want a roof over their heads. These are the basic things. When those things are in jeopardy, they're going to be far less interested in uh, the U.S.'s uh, political interventions around the world and its lack of diplomacy and everything else. All they're going to care about is they don't have food for their families. Uh, they don't have heat, uh, and they don't know what they're going to do. So these are the things that, when it comes down to it, are going to concern them. The United States can talk all it wants about its lofty uh, goals for democracy, all lies, but no one's going to be paying attention because they're going to be worrying about food. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. My pleasure as always. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Republicans in key races scrap online references to Trump, abortion attempts by GOP candidates in competitive contests to pivot away from these issues have emboldened Democrats to mount an aggressive offense. This while, several Democratic candidates in tough Senate races are treading carefully when it comes to Biden's decision to cancel student loans for millions of borrowers, with some distancing themselves from the new White House plan that has quickly become a major campaign issue. As we move closer to the midterm, some of the issues that these Democrats and Republicans thought were slam dunks might actually have missed off the front of the rim. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He has 16 years experience on the front lines of public policy formation, having served as a special assistant to Virginia Governor L. Douglas Wilder, and he now hosts the Gary Flower Show every weekday morning from 9 to 11 a.m. on 101.3 FM and 990 AM Rejoice Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. Gary Flowers, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you, Dr. Leon. So we have, for example, Yesley Vega, a Republican running for the U.S. House in a competitive Virginia district, no longer mentions her connection to former President Trump in the bio section of her Twitter page. Uh, We've got Colorado State Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer running in a battleground house race. She no longer promotes language defending the sanctity of life on her campaign website. And now there's no mention of abortion at all a review of the website shows. And then you've got several Democratic candidates in Senate races. They're treading carefully when it comes to Biden's decision on student loans. What's going on here now, Gary? A lot of these things that the parties thought were going to be uh, winning flags for them, they're now treading much lightly over the terrain. Gary Flowers. We're seeing the volatility in uh, public perception of political messaging, and political candidates, as we usually do coming into September, whether it's a midterm year or a presidential year, I do believe the Republicans have overplayed their hand uh, in one sense, uh, that they would just automatically uh, take over the House uh, and and Senate uh, overwhelmingly just because of political tradition of off-year vote casting. At the same time, I think that they have missed the um, the boat that the the Trump uh, coattails are not as strong as they thought they would be, and hence you have some candidates now distancing themselves from uh, Trump and, and his messaging, uh, which will prove for a, a lot tighter uh, political races this fall in November, some sixty days away than we previously expected. You know, Gary, I also think there's something to be here, you know, to be to be uh, looked at here. And, you know, you use the word coattails, and I think that's important in this context. And that is what we're seeing is the two people that are ostensibly the leaders, the at least the headliners of the two parties, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, that neither one of them are terribly popular in general, that Biden's popularity is, you know, is down pretty low, that pumps, uh, I mean, Trump has, a, his power has always been that he has a very, very loyal base within the Republican Party that can give him power in the Republican Party to move ahead. But in general, neither one of these candidates, leaders of the party, seem to have any, any coattails whatsoever and just the opposite. At any rate, your thoughts on all of that, Gary Flowers? 
But if, but if we pull back the um, uh, unpack the knapsack and pull back the curtain, uh, as with a CNN poll uh, five days ago, the 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 micro trends for each one of those uh, figures is going in, in, in divergent directions. Uh, Biden is actually creeping upwardly uh, with people saying in general that he is um, trustworthy and that he is doing uh, a better job, not necessarily doing a good job, but doing a better job. Uh, whereas the loser of the last election, he's trending downwardly. Um, the images this morning, for instance, on all of the news networks of the color-coded uh, secret documents. This is not something that 50 years ago, all of the papers were white, but then you had on some of them, you know, a stamp that said secret service that, I mean, um, uh, confidential or classified that was small. These are color-coded documents, <laughs> which, you know, all around the border is yellow. All around the border is orange. It says classified. So that speaks to the unbelievability that people have now uh, about the loser of the last election. And that's why I think in a micro sense, he's trending downwardly. Can we make anything, a, a, am I wrong to look at the Republicans delivered as it relates to Roe? The Republicans delivered on what they had been promising and working on for the last 35 years. They delivered on it. And the country isn't happy. Joe Biden didn't really deliver on what he promised. He gave, he made some progress, but he didn't deliver. And the, and so there are those that aren't happy. Does that matter? I mean, I'm really surprised at the turnaround on the Republican side because they delivered what they promised they would deliver on. It took them a hell of a long time, but they got it done. Your thoughts? Yeah, but you, I think you're conflating terms. It's the Republican Party and they, and then it's a, it's a referendum on him. And I think the referendum on him is trending downwardly because of the, the raid and what, what looks like, uh, and, you know, at some point an indictment and perhaps even you know, a, a trial. That said, yes, Joe Biden did not deliver in the technical sense, mm -hmm. but he has given crumbs on each thing. Now, for my politics, I don't, I, I don't, I don't deal well with crumbs. But that said, there is a micro trend of Biden at least doing something and moving the needle. Mm -hmm. I think the last two legislative deals, you know, I, one thing I really did not like about being on Capitol Hill was the braggadocia around, well, it's not a perfect bill, but you've got to give up something. Mm -hmm. I used to always make the distinction between uh, collaboration and capitulation. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that the Democrats are too soft, but that's for another one of your shows. Mm -hmm. But as it relates to these micro trends of which I speak, uh, I do believe that that is helping the Democrats going into the midterms, as evidenced by Republican candidates distancing themselves from the principle, mm -hmm. you know, Trump himself, not necessarily the Republican Party. And on that note, as a segue, I do believe that um, Liz Cheney is banking on 
taking over where Trump left off because she voted with him, what, 92% of the time? More like 95. Yeah, 95% of the time. And trying to make herself out to be for political novices as some kind of reformer. No, she is Dick Cheney's daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she may be worse than he. Mm-hmm. So, if that's possible. So he was just he was just mean. She's smart and mean. So that's it. I was just saying, I'll conclude by saying, I think the micro trends are favoring Biden and the Democrats at this point. And as more shoes drop from Mar-a-Lago, I think that that will help the Democrats going forward. I don't see anything that's helping the, the Republicans from who follow, who've been, you know, devotees to Trump, uh, helping them in the next 60 days. Here's an article um, in Mississippi Today. The drinking water system in Jackson, Mississippi, largest in Jackson, Mississippi's largest city and home to more than 160,000 residents is failing. Thousands of Jackson residents already have no or little water pressure and officials cannot say when adequate, reliable service will be restored. And I'll tell you my first thought. Let me throw you my first thought. Every time I turn around, there's another $40 billion going to Ukraine. There's another $3.8 billion going to Israel. There's another somebody billion going somewhere. A billion and a half is what it would cost to fix the, the Flint water. Here, probably a few hundred million. It's like we can never find money for our own infrastructure, but everybody else around the world has got to get some of that Raytheon Lockheed Martin money. And that's what burns me up. Your thoughts, um, uh, Gary Flowers? So unpack the knapsack here on Jackson, Mississippi, we have to go back 50, 60 years. And the fight flight from the capital city of the state of Mississippi to surrounding areas, Pearl and um, Canton and, and other places that border uh, Jackson, Mississippi. When white flight took place 60 and 50 years ago, there was a collective uh, public policy position of let us uh, abandon any money going to Jackson. Even the federal money that comes into the state of Mississippi for Jackson has to be funneled through the legislature. We know that, that Mississippi has the largest number of blacks in the country. And you add to that a progressive mayor in the, in the, in the form of, of uh, Mayor Lumumba, uh, there is there has been a position quietly and sometimes vocally that we don't care what happens in Jackson. It's 80 percent black and let them, you know, starve. Now, what they don't realize is that the same drinking water that the blacks drink in Jackson, Mississippi, whites do as well. And it speaks to the crumbling infrastructure across America. As Mayor Lumumba said, Jackson may well be the poster city for America's crumbling infrastructure, but also the lack of collaboration between the state legislature and the counties that surround Jackson. Um, one thing that, that, that is for sure, you cannot segregate water. And if you try to punish black people and their drinking water, it's going to affect whites as well. And so now I think it's a, a great time for the state of Mississippi and the surrounding counties to say we're all in this together. Which is hard to do when the governor, Tate Reeves, won't even invite Mayor Lumumba to the press conference. And Lumumba has been talking about the crumbling water system for a number of years. 
Not only that, his daddy was talking about it 30 years ago uh, when the family moved to Jackson, 35 years ago. And so uh, Jackson, Mississippi is a, is a great test for where America is. Beyond Trumpism, uh, where does America stand as uh, on the platform of we're all in this together? And Jackson will, will be a bellwether. And and I think it though, and and you make a good point. There is definitely a local issue here. I mean, local in that racism isn't local, but it's it it, it is oftentimes a local practice. But and but I do think, my, isn't it interesting that my first thought was infrastructure in a whole. You know, my first thought went to our whole infrastructure is yeah. crumbling. We, we got, oh, we got yeah, about, we got forty five seconds, Gary. Yes, uh, it is very similar to Flint around the same racial uh, lines of demarcation. Where black people live and brown people live and poor people live, who cares? Well, people who live in Pearl and around the surrounding counties uh, care, and they're white. And so I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent opportunity for the racist tradition of Mississippi to now say to the world, okay, we get it. I don't have a lot of faith that they will do so, but um, we'll, we'll see in the next uh, – in the next 60 days. Gary Flowers, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Stay with me, please, Gary. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to the Defense Post, Solomon Islands suspends U.S. naval visits. The Solomon Islands has suspended all visits from the United States Navy, the U.S. Embassy in Canberra said yesterday, heightening concerns over the growing influence of China in the region. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. As always, sir, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you, Wilmer. The United States received formal notification from the government of Solomon Islands regarding a moratorium on all naval visits, pending updates in protocol procedures, a embassy spokeswoman said in the statement released by the embassy. What signals does this send to you? How concerned should the United States be? And is do we really have to look at this as I believe the the context of the article, the growing influence of China in the region, as though that's this ominous, dangerous reality. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because I did laugh when I read that disclosure and the statement, which to me was like hilarious how we can sort of uh, uh, create uh, nothing from nothing or something from nothing. You know, basically, that's the bottom line to it. This has nothing to do with China's growing influence and so forth. Yes, they do have some sort of an agreement, whatever. But this one has to do with Manasseh 
Sogavari, the prime minister, was talking about. He was talking about the sovereignty of the Solomon Islands. He argued that the reason why they are implementing this, and by the way, just for your listeners to know, this does not apply just to the U.S. That means on all foreign naval vessels uh, uh, you know, coming through the docks of, uh, of Solomon Island. They wanted to make sure that they can police their own uh, shores and old docks and all that stuff, because they got some foreign countries that they just send in the naval assets, docking for fueling, whatever, without the consent of the country. So it becomes like for us here in the U.S., would we want any other country to just come over to our shores and dock the boats or naval assets or whatever without our approval? And this is exactly what Solomon Island is doing. And uh, as a matter of fact, they did allow, and um, that was before the, the order was issued for the uh, naval hospital, mm-hmm. because usually it's on a, on a, on a naval asset, uh, to dock. But now they're going to have to change the orders because Solomon Island made it clear that from now on moving forward, this order stands till they figure out uh, a protocol by which uh, permission will be granted to any foreign vessels to come in to the shores in, in Solomon Island. That's what the bottom of it. So what the article was talking about, the influence of China and all that, it's nonsense. I also think that there is some, uh, it is relative to look at the like the last six or eight months wherein um, China, you know, the Solomon's Island had what appeared to be somewhat of a color revolution going on. It was in an area where there was a lot of Chinese development and they attacked some of that. There was suspicion that the West may be, be behind some of it. Um, and Australia sent troops in. After that, the Chinese negotiated some deal for um, with them for ships. And the U.S. afterwards said they wouldn't rule out military action and literally said, well, Solomon's Island is a red line, which is 7,391 miles or 41 miles from the U.S. government. That's where our red line is. It seems to me that to some extent, Solomon's Island is the so- Solomon Islands is drawing a red line saying, this is ours, and we can decide who comes and who goes. Just reminding the world, this is ours, and we have sovereignty, and we won't be intimidated. Dr. Walalu. Well, what exactly, Garland? You're absolutely correct. It's because it highlights the idea of sovereignty. That is what this is all about. The idea that because Solomon Island had unfortunate experiences before, with uh, some foreign uh, naval assets, you know, entering the country without the diplomatic clearance that he ought to have. That is, a, uh, under international law, it's a protocol. You can just dock your naval assets, whatever that might be, without clearance for that. That's just the normal procedures. So for the U.S. to be saying, and I was aware of that uh, uh, statement by the United States a couple of months ago, because we did a video on that one, because, disclosing exactly why China went ahead and signed an agreement with Solomon Island. Now it's on the paper because both countries come to an agreement with the uh, acceptance of Solomon Island. So this one, it will be no ambiguity and it will be no confusion. But at at the end of the day, we need to think in terms of it's a sovereign state. They can decide whatever they want within their own shores or own borders, whatever you want to call it. Orinoco Tribune has a piece faced with U.S. decapitation drill, DPRK Korea missile launch 
is self-defense. The Western corporate media described the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's launch of two missiles August 17 as threatening, aggressive, and paranoid. What most media failed to report was the prior U.S. military exercises with Japan and South Korea off Hawaii in preparation for extensive war exercises off Korea that provoked the two warning shots. Your thoughts, Dr. Walalu. Well, all I can say about this is look at history, and we can go back to the Korean War. Uh, and, and since 1945, uh, basically the U.S. has unilaterally <laughs> decided on what's going on in the peninsula on the South Korean side. And this is why the you know, we sort of install the government that will have to bow to our demands and needs and so forth in defiance of the Korean people. So that, that's coming. So North Korea is looking at it from a deterrence point of view. And this is why we are thinking twice about attacking North Korea, because North Korea has nuclear weapons. That's the bottom line to it, which usually the U.S. would not disclose that. But they do have over 121 uh, nuclear war. Yes, they don't have as much, but still enough that they can devastate the 50,000 U.S. soldiers in South Korea. And can you just imagine, just for your listeners to put this picture in front of their eyes, just imagine we're seeing body bags coming in on a regular, on a weekly basis from South Korea. So, and, and that is where the, uh, so for the U.S. to be stating this, that is provocation from North Korea. No, they are looking for their own survival. And the thing is, we couldn't get in because we are concerned that they might retaliate against the 50,000 U.S. soldiers. And it becomes the question of what are we doing there in the first place? Well, this triggered back. That's how the Korean War in 1950-1953, uh, you know, started when we decided to literally level the North Korean uh, uh, country. And, and we all know what the rest of it is. That's why they still, they still till today, that the... Uh, the agreement it does not it's not official you know it's still hold till today that the the the, uh, the dmz and all it's because of it was nothing clear about okay how should we proceed for and north korea thought about it over the years and it kind of like no 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 you can't trust you can't trust we're gonna have to build our own deterrence and that's basically what they're doing so and this is why last time i read uh, three or four days ago uh, uh, that some Western countries in, in, in Europe, in addition to the U.S., saying, well, we have to uh, denuclearize North Korea. Even, even the Secretary of State saying something like this. Come on, man. Are you delusional? You know, they think that just because we're going to say this, they're going to uh, denuclearize? It just doesn't make any sense. And to me, I start to question the judgments of these policymakers or whomever in charge of U.S. foreign policy uh, and, and, and it gives me an idea how much they lack, they lack the depth in understanding what geopolitics is all about. So North Korea, it's about survival. And they are not going to denuclearize no matter what, no matter what. I don't see them doing that because that's their insurance policy. Speaking about the US, the latest U.S. arms sale to, to um, Taiwan, Chinese uh, newspaper Global Times says the arms sale will, will be futile in changing the absolute superiority of the Chinese People's Liberation Army over Taiwan's armed force, and the PLA will be more than ready to deal with them. And Russia has had actually had a statement in task where they said they saw 
the latest Taiwan Strait uh, ship movement as a uh, U.S. ship going through the Taiwan Strait as a provocation. Um, what are your thoughts about the response by China of the U.S. allegedly se- selling $1.1 billion worth of um, war material to Taiwan? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, and, and if I am to follow the protocols for the agreements that we decide on way back with China regarding Taiwan, so this sale of this type of weapons, it's basically will be a violation of that one China policy. Because we agreed on this. We agreed to only provide a defensive weapon, certain type. But when you advance with them, I looked at the list of what's in, 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 in uh, uh, I mean, the... Uh, the weapon systems that's going to be sold. There are some uh, some offensive weapons that's going to be sold to Taiwan. But even with that, still China has the upper hand. The question that we need to ask is, how irresponsible are we becoming in creating a dangerous situation by escalating in this fashion? You know, it's almost like, as I always say, we're saying one thing and doing the opposite. And that kind of leaves you with no credibility whatsoever. And at some point, somebody's going to miscalculate. And it will be too late to even, it will be out of control by then. And we all know China is prepared to move into that direction, should it call for. For now, they are holding, kind of keeping calm about it, uh, sort of sending warnings to the U.S. in the sense of, you know, you are violating the policy and so forth. But again, they need to understand, they, the Chinese, they need to understand that who is behind all this. And when you have neocons pushing, it's the same argument that was made after the fall of the Soviet Union. In 1992, it was the same argument that we're going to have to expand this world. We're going to have to bankrupt the, the, uh, uh, the emerging Russian Federation, financially speaking. And so uh, neocons have to decide on that because it was a geopolitical oriented policy. And this is where the concern that I see going on with Taiwan. At some point, China's going to snap and it will be bad for everybody. That's where my concern. Going back to this launching of the missiles by the DPRK, Mm -hmm. does their developing relationship with China factor into these dynamics as well? And I can only imagine as the DPRK's relationships with China develops and becomes more formal, that Russia is right there with them. Well, I was going to add that one, uh, uh, one more. Uh, don't forget Russia's role into that. Both countries, China and Russia, and mainly China. Of course, Russia is sort of behind the scenes, if you will. Be both, but mainly China comes to the forefront as far as supporting North Korea. North Korea will not do anything without consulting with China. Because remember, the borders, uh, the Russia also the issue that mm-hmm. they don't want any issues regarding the military uh, dimensions to it. And this is why the relationship between China and North Korea will stay the course. And it will even move further into strengthening those bilateral relations. And you add to the equation uh, the Russians, and you can just see why. And put this into the context for your listeners, to put this into the context of the current military exercises that Russia is conducting by having China and India join in. You're looking at 50,000 troops conducting maneuvers 
this stuff don't this 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 kind of exercises don't happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. This is a message to the United States to ensure that this time around the outcome is going to be very very different. Dr. David Walalu, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. As we have discussed uh, in earlier portions of the show, Mikhail Gorbachev, the first president of the Soviet Union, has died. Uh, The Central Clinical Hospital said yesterday he was 91 years old. For insight into this and to other Issues. We're going to turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea, Regis Tremblay. As always, Regis, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. It is always a pleasure to be with you. Give us your thoughts on the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, how is this being covered in Crimea? Well, and how is it being covered in Crimea and the rest of Russia? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to uh, to comment on this. Uh, number one, for two main reasons. Number one, I met Mikhail Gorbachev in 2018. I was documenting a citizen diplomacy tour of Russia, and he met with us for two hours, and I filmed the entire session. And I met him afterwards. He shook my hand, and he said to me, make sure you get this out on YouTube tonight. And we had a laugh about that. (laughs) Uh, I have to tell you that I've never met a person who was so important globally in my life. It was it was uh, another another experience for me. And I've interviewed a lot of people. Now, uh, we found him and I found him genuine, honest, believable, friendly, he was so friendly with us. We only thought we'd see him for maybe a half an hour. He's been quite ill. He'd been in and out of the hospital. I believe he was having um, kidney dialysis and very frail. Instead of staying for 30 minutes, he stayed for two hours. Everybody in the group was really taken incredible by this. So that's my personal experience with him. I've since not since, but before this, I had done a great deal of research. Uh, and I can tell you this, there are people and many, many people in Russia who were alive during the 1990s for Perestroika and Glasnost, which Gorbachev introduced into the Soviet Union. It led to the breakup of the Soviet Union and Because it was so unplanned and hectic, Gorbachev was replaced by Boris Yeltsin. The end of the Soviet Union ended an era 
for most people alive at that time that they cherished. And they cherished it for these reasons. Everybody had a job. Everybody had a free place to stay, an apartment. Everybody had free education, as high as you could go intellectually and academically. There was no poverty to speak of. There was no tremendous um, income inequality. And, and these people who lived through this felt that they lost it all because of Mikhail Gorbachev. There are many here, many, many here of that generation who do not consider him like Americans do. Americans and Westerners considered him Gorby. He was the one that, that agreed to take down the Berlin Wall and reunify Germany. He was the one that let the Soviet republics return to independence. And from the Western point of view, he's considered an incredible international hero. And on top of that, with Ronald Reagan, the two of them managed to begin the elimination of nuclear weapons. It was a dream that Reagan had, and it was a dream that Gorbachev had. Gorbachev wanted to do away with all of them. And the hang-up was that Reagan was developing this uh, Star Wars thing, this, this global protection against Russian nuclear missiles. And Gorbachev wanted him to do away with it. And Reagan just couldn't do it because he said he promised the American people he would not abandon Star Wars. Nevertheless, they were successful in signing several of the nuclear test ban treaties and disarmament. And so when he traveled to the United States, he, he would stop his car in the middle of Manhattan, get out and talk to people. He did this in many of the states across the country, he spoke at universities. And he has such a personality that's charismatic and outgoing that people just nat naturally gravitated towards him. So in a nutshell, that's my own personal experience with him. It's my personal experience in speaking with many, many Russians who lived at that, at that era who blame him for the fall of the Soviet Union and the loss of so many benefits that everybody shared. Well, well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate the, you know, the, the personal insight there. Um, moving on, there's some pr pretty interesting stories, not the least of which being the um, infamous uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, offensive, counteroffensive, whatever you will, want to call it, in, in Kherson region. Um, what happened there? What, what can you tell us? What do you know about that? Well, <laughs> I know a lot about it. Uh, <laughs> because I've been reading the local media and the reports from the Russian Ministry of Defense uh, who give these daily reports. And basically what happened, this highly anticipated and, taunter, and touted counteroffensive by Zelensky, who personally ordered it, is, is what we're hearing here. On the first day of this offensive, in Kherson, over 1,000 Ukrainian military people were killed in what they called a botched operation. The Russian forces had taken out hundreds of Ukrainian troops and dozens of tanks, 
and armored military vehicles, and a statement added that officials believe the failed operation was mounted at the personal order of Zelensky. He is going to lose face in a bad, bad way. Now, some other things about this. Um, Kiev has continued provocations through August 30th that are aimed at disrupting the work of the IAEA mission uh, to the nuclear power plants in Zaporozhye. Um, these people are there already. They're on the ground. They've, they have announced that they plan on staying there for several days on the grounds of the nuclear power plant. The Russians, for their part, are saying that they are going to provide this team with all of the evidence, including shrapnel, missile parts, with identifications that they were made in the United States, Poland, and other European countries. Now, this is incredible news coming on the same day that this offensive, uh, supposed offensive uh, by the Ukrainian army is taking place. In my opinion, this is all blowing up in the face of not only Zelensky, but of the United States and the Western narrative. I, I think um, everybody was expecting the braggadocio from, from Zelensky that we're gonna we're gonna mount this offensive, we're gonna take back Kherson, we're gonna take we're gonna take uh, Crimea back. And this is a big threat, big threat of his. We are gonna take Crimea back and whatever territory Russia has taken in the southern part, the Donbass, we will take it back with this offensive. The whole thing's blowing up in his face. It's going to be, a, it already is a massacre. And the other reports that we're getting is many of these troops were forced to enlist and they are cab drivers, plumbers, uh, home builders, uh, contract, construction workers, contract workers, people who are not equipped and not trained have just been thrown to the front lines in this offensive. And so there you have it. From my perspective today in the Russian Federation, what is happening on both of those fronts simultaneously. Talk about this piece, Frontline Report, Vanishing Foreign Weapons. What's been going on with the, uh, with the artillery and the other weapons that are being provided, uh, into, that are pumped into the region? Well, uh, I, I would guess that you've read some of the reports, the same things, same reports that I've read. There was a report that came from, I don't know if it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Guardian or somebody, that 70% of the weapons and money that were sent by the United States and other um, NATO countries have not gone to Ukraine, but have gone somewhere else into the hands of arms traders, into the, the money, into the pockets of some oligarchs, including including Zelensky. Um, the, we're getting reports from uh, troops that have been captured Ukrainian troops that have been captured, hundreds and hundreds of them. They all say that they cannot get equipment. The equipment that they get is breaking down. They can't repair it. Much of it doesn't work. And they're not getting any further or newer uh, 
equipment that's been so-called delivered to Ukraine already. These reports are not just coming from the United States, but now they're starting to come from people within Ukraine itself. They're saying that there's corruption, and the corruption is at the hands of some extremely wealthy people and some bad actors. So the whole narrative, in my opinion, is falling apart. And people like you, uh, Wilmer and Garland, and myself and others in the United States have got to keep reporting these things so that the people in the United States can hopefully see what their country is doing and has been telling them that is completely false and disingenuous and harmful to the most of the people in the United States, for sure the middle class and the poor. How do we square what you've just said with a New York Times report from last week, Biden announces a nearly $3 billion package of arms and equipment for Ukraine. It's the largest single package of aid aimed at helping the nation battle Russian forces. That was on the 24th of August. So how do we square what you've just said with what the New York Times is reporting? Well, I don't know how you or others over there are going to square it. It, it's pretty clear to me that all of this has been fraudulent. All of this has been nothing but one lie upon another lie upon another lie. The intention, the intention, the ultimate intention of the United States has been to keep this thing going as long as they can to weaken Russia, to weaken Putin, and to finish the job that George Herbert Walker Bush tried to start in the 1990s to break up Russia and steal its resources and its labor. We only got about a minute left, but um, the uh, foreign minister of Hungary is saying basically that the EU should stop further escalation. And it sounds like they're uh, wisely, I might add, uh, starting to backtrack. Your thoughts? Um, Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the reports that I'm getting is there are many, many cracks now in NATO and EU unity. Several people, the Hungarians are speaking out, the Greeks are speaking out, the people in Serbia and Kosovo are speaking out, uh, the Germans, uh, industry in Germany and other political parties are already saying this has been a catastrophic mistake that is impacting in a negative way more the European people and their economy than it is Russia. In fact, Russia's resources in gas and oil have been reaping unforeseen, unever recorded profits, and they are flush with cash. And nations around the Southern Hemisphere, the Middle East, are more than happy to buy this gas and oil at a discounted price and then sell it on the open market. And, and the Europeans now are beginning to see this. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, especially your personal account of your having met uh, former Russian President Gorbachev. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much, guys. Good to be with you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. As we've discussed uh, previously in the program, Mikhail Gorbachev, the first president of the Soviet Union, has died, and he was 91 years old. He passed yesterday. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, he was a chief weapons inspector with the UN in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me. Your thoughts on the passing of former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev? Well, as you uh, indicated in the um, introduction, uh, I've just published a book called Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika. Perestroika, of course, is the policy of restructuring that was the brainchild of Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, and so, you know, I come at this uh, this issue uh, from a, I, I think, a, a more personalized approach. Um, I was there during the Perestroika revolution, and that's what it was. It was a revolutionary change in the way the Soviet Union was governed and in the way the Soviet Union operated. And this this change was, you know, instituted by Gorbachev personally. I mean, this was his personal baby. There wasn't a team of people behind him saying, go, Gorby, go. <laughs> you know, this was Gorbachev looking over the terrain of the Soviet Union and saying, I'm not happy with what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a stagnated economy. I'm seeing a stifled society. Uh, I'm seeing um, a, a, a bureaucracy uh, that is controlled solely by the Communist Party that is virtually indifferent to the needs of the people. So he needed to change this, and he, he instituted this change. He, uh, you know, the, the week I arrived in the Soviet Union, Gorbachev uh, convened something called the 19th All-Party Union Conference. Now, People's eyes roll when they hear that because it's just typical Communist Party, rah, 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 except it isn't. If you know anything about the history of the Soviet Union, you know how extraordinary it is for a general secretary to convene an all-party union conference. Uh, the last one had been convened by Stalin in 1941, immediately prior to the German invasion. That's how rare these things are. Um, so to convene this, Gorbachev was putting a marker down saying, I have something extraordinarily important to share with the people of the Soviet Union. And he did. It was his announcement that the Soviet Union was going to embark down the path of democracy and that through the forces of democracy, they were going to empower the people to elect representatives who would then work in a legislative body, the Congress of People's Deputies, who would then elect a Supreme Soviet, sort of a Senate-type structure, that would work in concert with a president, not a general secretary, not a Communist Party official, but a president, independent of the Communist Party, to govern Russia. This is a revolution. I don't think, you know, people today go, yeah, Gorbachev, the Soviet Union collapsed, perestroika, da-da-da-da-da. It was a revolution, and he led it. It failed. I mean, you know, as much as the good intent was there, 
you know, struggling with the Soviet bureaucracy, struggling against Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin was a force, a power that opposed Gorbachev from the opposite spectrum of the Communist Party. The Communist Party wanted to hold on to power. Boris Yeltsin wanted to seize power away from Gorbachev. So Gorbachev's fighting a two-front war, and the political infighting delayed uh, the the ability to bring about this new government, this new governance. Um, and in the meantime, the economy of the Soviet Union collapsed. And from that, the people who were now empowered by this new democracy started to lose hope and faith in Gorbachev. And um, this led, again, to just a, a, a spiraling of events downward that Gorbachev couldn't control. Ultimately, there was a coup in August of 1991. Boris Yeltsin jumped on a tank saved Gorbachev's life, but destroyed Gorbachev's political career. On December 25th, 1991, Gorbachev resigned as the only president of the Soviet Union. That night, the communist flag was pulled down from the Kremlin, replaced by the tricolor. Um, Love him or hate him. And believe me, in Russia today, he is a reviled character. They blame him for all the troubles that came. But love him or hate him, you have to acknowledge one thing. Gorbachev was a man of history. He instituted changes that had a global impact. You know, if the Soviet Union had stayed, remained, we would have had a bilateral world. Today, we're looking at the possibility of a multipolar world. The singularity of American supremacy that came about because of the collapse of the Soviet Union is itself collapsing. This would not have happened had it not been for the changes, the global changes that were instituted when the Soviet Union fell. A vacuum was created. The United States was not up to the task of filling that vacuum responsibly. And 30 years later, the world is moving towards a new order. This would not have happened had not had Mikhail Gorbachev not began his failed revolution that ended up changing history forever. Uh, re- re- really quickly, isn't the the literal definition of the word perestroika reconstruction? Restructuring, reconstruction, yes. Okay. Okay, thanks. Uh, interesting article, Inexcusable, Russia Blocks Final Deal on Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. When you look into it, it's obvious that there was some stuff written in there so that the U.S. and its allies could, you know, take some kind of an action in the uh, in the Zaporozhia um, nuclear power plant. I mean, I can look at the wording and say, yeah, they'd veto that. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, look, the nonproliferation treaty is supposed to be a non-political document, an apolitical document. It's supposed to be a technical document. It's uh, it's literally about nuclear non-proliferation. What the United States and its allies have done is pervert this technical document, this effort to strengthen a technical regime of non-proliferation by politicizing um, what is in effect a war crime being perpetrated by the government of Ukraine on the international community, the ongoing military attacks, artillery attacks on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And Russia was right in saying, no, we're not playing that game. Um, And and, and as Russia pointed out, uh, they weren't the only ones unhappy with this document. Again, the United States has shown itself to be an irresponsible um, guardian of nuclear uh, non-proliferation. Uh, we're no longer the good guys. We're using our position 
you know, that I talked about with Gorbachev, it's a position in the, on the decline. So we're scraping and grasping at anything that can sustain our hold on power. And we're using the nonproliferation treaty to score political points, to gain political advantage. Um, but this ain't the Russia of the 1990s. This is the Russia of today. And the Russia of today told the United States to pound sand, let the chips fall where they might. But Russia's not signing on to a politicized document. Beatrice Finn, the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, says the failure of the treaty parties to reach a consensus deal is, quote, terminally unserious and a total abdication of responsibility in the face of an unacceptably dangerous global situation. Your thoughts on that assessment? Look, I I have respect for people who pursue dreams. Um, but Beatrice Fenn lives in an alternate, an alternate reality. Um, she, she thinks that the nonproliferation treaty is actually designed to do what it was intended to do. It has never been implemented in that fashion. Um, this isn't the first time that uh, <laughs> Finn has been disappointed, and it won't be the last time. Uh, I, I don't have time for her right now. There's too many other important things going. She literally doesn't matter. The only reason why we know her name is because of this unique second in history where she was able to speak about something uh, that was relevant to her area of political expertise. Tomorrow, we won't know her name. Next week, we won't know anything about her because she doesn't matter. I don't mean to be mean here, but you know, for her to open her mouth right now and inject nonsense into what is a fundamental debate over the power structure in the world today, uh, where the United States is singularly responsible for the perversion of the nonproliferation treaty. For her to speak as if there is a balance here, a shared responsibility, is irresponsible in the extreme. If she had come out and pointed the finger where it needed to be pointed to, straight at Washington, D.C., I have a lot more respect for her. But this, this wishy-washy woke, I'm going to be balanced thing. No, I'm sorry. There are people who do right and there are people who do wrong. And the United States is doing wrong and Russia is doing right right now. That may change down the road. I'm not saying Russia is perfect. But right now, what's going on with the nonproliferation treaty, Russia is on the right side of history. And Beatrice Fenn should have recognized that. Latest Gray Zone article, you, Ukraine war veterans on how Kiev plundered U.S. aid, wasted soldiers, endangered civilians, and lost the war. Scott. I mean, the, the, the title speaks for itself. <laughs> There's really not much more to add to it. Um, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, you know, but again, let's, you know, we, we say that, but, you know, what, let, let's take a look at reality for a second. Let's have reality hit us home. Uh, Ukraine's in the process of um, carrying out a significant counteroffensive in the Kherson region. They're going to fail, but it's a significant counteroffensive, meaning that whatever, you know, you can sit here and say, well, they've plundered this, they've done that, they've done this, they've done that. Hey, yeah, they also put uh, a couple brigades worth of armor and mechanized infantry on the front lines and were able to achieve localized superiority uh, sufficient to break through the Russian lines and, uh, you know, with a penetration of up to six kilometers. Uh, they were able to mass artillery so that they took that 10 to 1 advantage that Russia enjoyed and made it a 1 to 1 parity. Now, this isn't going to last forever. Uh, the Ukrainians won't be able to sustain this, but it's, um, 
the sure as hell aren't defeated. They aren't. They aren't a, a, a an army that's uh, curled up into a fetal position, whining for mommy. Uh, there's a bunch of brave Ukrainian soldiers out there right now, putting their lives on the line in defense of what they believe in. Um, and I think we need to recognize that that this war is still going on. Russia is going to win. I nothing's going to change my mind on that. Uh, but to pretend that you know we can mock the Ukrainians, we can talk about corruption, all that. That doesn't take away from the fact that there's some men with gigantic cojones right now that are out there doing things that most men in the world wouldn't even know how to contemplate doing. The courage it takes for these people to to, launch an assault into the teeth of the Russian defense is unimaginable. And again, it's, it's, it's courage that ultimately will probably result in the deaths of those who are, you know, exercising it. But it shouldn't be diminished. It shouldn't be disrespected. It should be acknowledged. And uh, we have just about a minute left. You have a piece. The only thing keeping U.S. and China from war is running dangerously thin. we got 45 seconds. I've written a lot of pieces lately. You're going to have to remind me where that one <laughs> Washington's out. ambiguous Taiwan policies are edging towards conflict. Oh, okay. About- yes, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Thanks. I, uh, no, look, I, I, in that article, I, I believe I ran through um, – the, the history of the um, of the of the agreements that have defined yes. the U.S. Chinese relationship, and um, you know that and, and I and I expose how the United States is drifting away from these agreements and trying to um, institute a, a new framework of political reality, and um, this isn't going to work because China hasn't drifted away from its core values. And ultimately, if the United States proceeds, you know, proceeds with with moving away from these agreed upon principles, um, it'll probably um, force the Chinese to take military action against Taiwan. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Craig Murray has a piece in Consortium News entitled, Marx Was Right, The Crisis of Capitalism is Now Upon Us. There are no palliative measures that will make the situation bearable. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So in the opening of the piece, Murray gives a lot of background to make this point. The key thought towards which he's been plotting through this morass of explanation, as he defines it, is, I grew up in the one era when capitalism was sufficiently moderated by palliative measures that it seemed a reasonable way to conduct society. That ended around 1980 when the doctrine of neoliberalism took hold of the Western world. In the UK, that doctrine now firmly controls the conservatives, liberal Democrat and labor and Scottish national parties and is promoted relentlessly by both state and corporate media. Your thoughts, Dr. Tahid? 
I think the, um, the, that if, if we're referring to uh, uh, Karl Marx's analysis of the capitalism of his time, uh, which, which certainly has, uh, is the background for the capitalism today, Marx certainly was the most astute observer and created a very, I think, um, uh, commanding and logical understanding of capitalism. Uh, the capitalism of, of Marx's time uh, was uh, what we've been talking about on this program, industrial capitalism. It was a capitalism in which industry uh, was the, the major reason for capitalism's being, the expansion of capital, the expansion of, of industry. And uh, a finance in that situation was just to serve capitalism. Uh, that grew uh, labor, the, the labor movement grew during that period of time as well. And uh, if you if you want to think of the industrialists and the, and, and labor as growing uh, together, both uh, exhibited some type of I guess you could, well, John uh, Kenneth Galbraith called it countervailing power on each other, uh, so that the capitalism of industrial capitalism did not become as extreme as it has become after the 1980s. But after the 1980s, we're, we're talking about the Reagan uh, being being kind of the, the tipping point for that Reagan administration. Uh, Reagan, of course, went on his, um, his crusade to uh, destroy unions, starting with uh, PADCO, and we've seen union organizing uh, diminish significantly since then. And what has gone to replace industrial capitalism is a new phase of capitalism that, we, that is called financial capitalism, in which finance has become the, the leader, and uh, industrial capitalism has become uh, partly a way to finance, uh, finance but, uh, but then there are other ways of financing finance that have nothing to do with actually producing anything of value. Uh, we saw that collapse in the 2008 uh, financial crisis where mortgage-backed securities, completely fictitious capital, uh, was, uh, was was the cause of that, but it also made lots and lots of people fantastically wealthy. And so Marx, Marx's analysis of capitalism was of industrial capitalism. I don't think he ever envisioned financial capital. You know, another, I think, collapse of capitalism has to do with China. And here's what I mean. The capitalists saw cheap labor. China opened its labor market up and they saw educated people because it was a socialist country and the education was free. They saw an educated workforce that was where they could have low uh, labor costs. They moved everything there, but it worked quite well. And China was able to turn that into a, a, a thriving economy. And now they're angry going back after China for something that they precipitated. And I think that's another crisis in that they're causing this world instability because China was industrious enough to make the situation work for them. But they created the um, uh, the context for that. Your thoughts? Can I add one little oh, sure, element, sure. element to that? And that is as part of the of of the west moving their labor to china china also negotiated access to the design of the products that were being made and the technology and because china was investing in the education of their population they were then able to take that and develop or reengineer and develop their own technologies. And that, to a great degree, I think is what's pissing the United States off. 
Yeah, what what the Chinese uh, understood, um, as, even as they were coming out of out of their communist uh, uh, stage, was that was that uh, in, industrial capitalism was capable of producing mass um, of, of, of producing mass masses of items, mass production, but was also uh, possible to produce uh, uh, increasing wealth as long as that wealth is more equally distributed mm-hmm. than, it, than it would be in the West. And, uh, you know, what, what, what has happened is that you have a transplantation of, an, of that industrial capitalism that was in the U.S. over to China and the rest of the world, leaving a void here in the U.S. of financial capitalism, which believes it can continue to operate even though uh, the, the, the country in which it is operating from uh, can no longer produce anything for itself. Uh, what the Chinese also discovered is that uh, the, the Achilles heel of capitalism is that everything is for that includes labor. And so and so what they have and the Chinese have done is is, uh, uh, you know, put their labor, their educated labor on the market. And they have they have purchased the, the labor that industrial capitalism in the U.S. Uh, used to have uh, because they're offering a, a better price. Um, and uh, they're offering uh, a better productivity. That better price for China uh, in terms of wages was was very much higher than the wages in the U.S. And and so there's kind of a triage, if you will, going on for financial capitalists. They really believe that you can actually continue to grow an economy even though you don't produce any actual things in that economy. Uh, that that is that is another um, of, of the crises of capitalism. And the they you're talking about is the United States believes the U.S. Yes, right. Yes, okay. U.S. industrialists, right, or not industrialists, U.S. U.S. finance, Finan- right, financiers. Yeah, yeah. You remember during the 2008 crisis, you know, of course there was money given given away to all kinds of financial institutions and so forth. And when uh, President Obama wanted to give some money to General Motors, like all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, hell no, we're not going to do that. Oh, we'll only do it if we can own it, and and so forth and so on. Uh, financial capitalism can get whatever it wants. Industrial capitalism has to has to um, to beg. And to follow up on that time period, if, if I understand it correctly, when the United States bailed out the banks, when Obama bailed out the banks, and then the banks did not turn around and reinvest that money into the economy, they only bought back their own stock and paid their executives highly. Obama's response was, I didn't think the banks would do that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it was also airlines, if you remember. Correct. Uh, airlines who mm-hmm. went, to, went to Washington, D.C. and got billions and billions of dollars and then still laid off their employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, recently we've had the, uh, the chip manufacturers who uh, got, what, $50 billion dollars? So I think it was $52 billion uh, mm-hmm. from Congress. And then uh, the day after, they started laying off employees in the U.S. and building factories uh, in, in Malaysia. Uh, and, and so it's, it's not like this is a new thing that never happened before. So I don't, I don't see how Obama could, be, could have been surprised. $3 billion more for war, but nothing for free COVID tests. This is in Consortium News. A U.S. government portal says shipments will be suspended on September 2nd because Congress hasn't provided additional funding to replenish the nation's stockpile of COVID tests. And public health advocates are warning the imminent suspension of the COVID test program could lead to the autumn and winter surge in infections that officials Mm -hmm. have feared for months. But we got plenty money to send to the Ukraine, Dr. Tahit. 
Yeah, it, 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 uh, there's, there's a couple of things here. One, the idea of holding off on COVID um, uh, testing now uh, to wait for, for, for the winter is, is really very short-sighted. It's a linear thinking. It's, it's not a multiplicative thinking in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, it, it, uh, epidemics grow not one at a time. Mm-hmm. They grow one to two to four, you know. And so if we wait until the winter to figure out what has happened in the summer, we'll find that we don't have enough vaccinations or enough, enough of a health care system to take care of that. When if we dealt with it now, we could, we could, we could, we could handle it. Uh, that's one. The second is, is, you know, the amount of money that's going to Ukraine. Now, now understand this money is not going to Ukraine. Right. Uh, this money, this money is going to the military industrial complex. Via Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Via Ukraine. And so it, uh, you know, it, it used to be, of course, uh, you know, President Eisenhower warned about this military industrial complex and, and its power. It was, it was weak, much, much weaker then than it is now. And you could, you, if you think about it as the tail wagging the dog that is the uh, military industrial complex mag- wagging the dog, we are way beyond that. The war is the dog. Uh, you know, and 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 then everything else is the tale that gets neglected, including healthcare and climate change and anything else that is going to interfere in revenue going to uh, uh, the military-industrial complex and their suppliers. It's not just weapons manufacturers; it's also, as we said, finance, which is getting fantastically rich in financing these operations. That $3 billion, by the way, for weapons is to, uh, for weapons to be produced now to be sent to Ukraine in, in, in a couple of years because they, they don't have that in their stockpile. Uh, that money is, is not going to Ukraine. It's going to weapons manufacturers. So the reality is there probably won't be a Ukraine within a couple of years, so they're going to pay the money to the weapons manufacturers. And again, it seems like this is another part of a, a money laundering operation. But one of the things that Craig Murray is talking about, and I think it's important, I'd like to get a comment. We've got a couple of minutes left, and that is he basically says this thing's spinning out of control and it can't continue. And I think the first place that's obvious is in Europe because of what's coming for them this winter. We got about two minutes. Your co- comments, your thoughts. Yes, yes. I, I think the crack, if there is a crack, will, will certainly occur in Europe. We've talked about the ability of, of European citizens to change their government if they just protest enough. Uh, that's not the case in the U.S. Uh, you can protest, uh, but you still have to wait for the next election. And so, you know, in, in, the, in the meantime, Homeland Security and so forth begins to crack down. I remember uh, there was a, uh, a French uh, protest some times ago, and one of the protesters was asked, uh, why did they do this or how can they do this? And his response was, uh, in the U.S., uh, the people are afraid of the government. In, in France, the government is afraid of the people. And and uh, with the power to change government by protest, um, I think, uh, you know, and, and with the increasing um, uh, cost for energy and and uh, the winter that's coming along, I, th- I think you'll see the, certainly see the first cracks in Europe, whether that will migrate to the U.S. in terms of labor strikes and other kinds of things. I, I'm not so sure. Americans seem to be very tolerant of these of these situations. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, we look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir.
Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Libertarian Institute has a piece entitled, White House Considering Banning Nicaraguan Imports. Washington is undergoing discussions about cutting imports from Nicaragua, according to two unnamed sources that spoke with Voice of America. Uh, Analysts believe barring Nicaraguan imports will do serious damage to the Central American economy, country's economy. Here we go with sanctions again. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So top officials said sanctions targeting Managua are under consideration because of corruption within the government of Daniel Ortega. The Biden administration has targeted several high-level Nicaraguan officials with sanctions. Uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, quote, the Biden-Harris administration finds the actions of Ortega unacceptable and condemn these actions, unquote. Dr. Horn, is President Ortega an authoritarian dictator— who is involved in corruption, or is he a responsible president cleansing his government of American operatives based upon Nicaraguan law or some combination of the two? Well, I would say that Washington, U.S. imperialism, has an elephant-like memory. They have not forgotten what some may have forgotten. I'm speaking of the Sandinista Revolution of the late 1970s. And Nicaragua's subsequent de facto alliance with socialist Cuba, and then following that, that is to say setbacks in the late 1980s and 1990s, you see the comeback of the Sandinistas, and their present de facto alliance with Cuba and Venezuela, and as well, Washington is hysterically concerned about the pink tide the sweeping through the hemisphere of speaking of the election of Boric in Chile. And by the way, pay close and careful attention to the referendum on the Chilean constitution that will be unfolding in the next few days. It will be a landmark globally. They have not forgotten, speaking of Washington, the election of President Petro in Bogota, and the perhaps pending election of Lula da Silva in the continent's giant, speaking of Brazil, uh, not to mention other victories in uh, Peru and elsewhere. And so from Washington's point of view, as uh, Mr. Reagan used to say, uh, Nicaragua is a few days driving distance, as he used to say, (laughs) from the uh, Texas border. And so, therefore, Washington cannot be indifferent uh, to uh, what goes on in Managua. 
And if I may, I would like to uh, issue a footnote here, uh, which is that uh, you also need to consider uh, Nicaragua and what's happened there since the late 1970s with the Sandinista Revolution in the context of this uh, really sincere mourning in Washington about the death of the last president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. But what's striking about this sincere mourning is that uh, all of these pundits and commentators and officials have not connected the dots. Uh, that is to say, somehow they have forgotten that what put inordinate pressure on the then Soviet Union of uh, causing the country then constituted to collapse was the pressure involved in Afghanistan with Washington backing religious zealots against a left-leaning regime backed by Moscow, uh, which was quite uh, drainful, uh, quite baneful to the Soviet Union's interests. And then there's the big enchilada, which is the entente with the People's Republic of China, uh, which led to massive foreign direct investment into China, which has now created this juggernaut. And so I find it remarkable that with all of this applause, stomping on the grave of the Soviet Union, somehow these commentators have forgotten what contributed to that, which will make it all the more difficult for Washington and U.S. imperialism to confront the People's Republic of China because of this either amnesia or dementia that causes this forgetfulness, and not to mention the religious zealots uh, who have yet to be squashed and will be causing headaches for U.S. imperialism for decades to come. In my first thoughts when I saw this was they are reinforcing the need for an alternative economic system. You know, I just read that uh, uh, Russia and Iran are integrating the mirror system and some of their payment systems. Um, you know, there has been talk for a while about uh, building a, a, a second canal and that goes through Nicaragua to kind of challenge the uh, um, the Panama Canal. Um, this is kind of, you know, oddly enough, the U.S. in taking these actions rather than, you know, if they do this, which seems likely to me, rather than, you know, just crush countries, they're letting all these countries know those who have been punished and those who haven't, you, be, you better find this and support this new economic system because that's your, your only option. Um, your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, yes. And Nicaragua is key in that regard. I'm sure you're familiar with the Bolivarian alternative for the Americas that includes, of course, Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua. I'm sure you're familiar with the South American counterpart, Mercosur, uh, which is led by Brazil and Argentina. And by the way, note that just a few weeks ago at the Mercosur summit, you had uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine seeking to dial in in his green T-shirt to make an impassioned plea for support. And the leaders of Mercosur refused to take his call. They treated him as if he were Biden calling Saudi Arabia a month or two ago. And so because of that kind of snub, that helps to generate and drive this hysteria in Washington, uh, which seeks to punish nations like Nicaragua, not to mention uh, its comrades in Caracas and Havana, uh, for daring to try to create and construct alternatives to neoliberalism, 
uh, to this alleged rule-based international order, which is a veiled reference to a U.S.-dominated regime constructed post-1945 when U.S. imperialism was bestriding the planet like a colossus and when most of Africa was colonized and therefore had no role in constructing this alleged rule-based international order. But now the tables have turned, times are changing, and hysterically, Washington is desperately and frantically seeking to hold on to a declining status quo. To your reference to the days of yore and colonialism, Africans take UK to court over abuses committed during colonial era. Several Kenyan activists are suing the United Kingdom over abuses committed during the British Empire's colonial era, raising a case against the country in the European Court of Human Rights. The plaintiffs, Africans forced off their land in the Kenyan Rift Valley, are saying London violated the European Convention of Human Rights through the abuses it committed in Africa during its colonial rule of the continent. And I can only assume that as this proceeds and expands, that tangentially the United States will be drawn into this. And it's also, to me, very interesting to see that now you have China, the powers of China and Russia gaining influence on the continent as the West power starts to wane. Well, I I agree with what you said, and I would urge our friends in Nairobi to consider adding as a defendant in this lawsuit the United States of America. You know that uh, a few years back I did a book on the United States and the liberation of Kenya, and I began the book by talking about the U.S. mercenaries, Euro-Americans, who were flooding into Kenya in the 1950s to stop independence, which emerged in 1963. Indeed, you may know that British colonialism, uh, which sunk its claws and talons into East Africa in the latter part of the 19th century, uh, British colonialism had a personnel and a manpower problem. That is to say, Britain's contemporary population is about 60 to 65 million, yet they were trying to administer a far-flung empire in today's India, today's Pakistan, today's Sri Lanka, today's Myanmar, a good deal of Africa, a good deal of Caribbean, etc. And so they had to rely heavily upon Euro-American mercenaries and personnel in order to construct white supremacy and colonialism. In fact, as I point out, the richest man in Kenya pre-1963 was a Euro-American. And so uh, this is not just a minor point. You are correct to suggest that inevitably, inexorably, unavoidably, U.S. imperialism would be drawn into this lawsuit and referenced here. We would be remiss if we neglected to mention this factoid, that as Kenya was surging towards independence in 1963, Washington was concerned about the role of the left, even though he turned out to be a neo-colonialist, Jomo Kenyatta, in the 1930s in London, uh, had consorted with Paul Robeson and Kwame Nkrumah and C.L.R. James and was thought to be a dangerous radical. And so the United States was trying to construct a, an elite uh, more favorable uh, to their interests, uh, which, of course, I'm sure you can infer by now, 
uh, led to the arrival at the University of Hawaii in the late 1950s, early 1960s, when Barack Obama uh, Sr., and unless mm-hmm. you believe uh, Donald J. Trump pre-September 2015, Obama II was born in Honolulu in 1961. I did want to ask you this, looking at this, is it connect? I, I, it seems connected to me, the whole Ukraine thing, what's going on there, what's going on, the kind of anti-imperialist movement that's going on around the world. I look at what's happening here with these um, activists suing the UK. And of course, uh, Macron barely made it out of Algeria the other day, you know, by the skin of his teeth when the Algerian crowd was, was, was yelling expletives at him and he didn't understand what they were saying. Is all this connected? Oh, certainly. <laughs> and speaking of Macron... I'm sure you saw the article in Rolling Stone about Mr. Trump keeping at Mar-a-Lago the dossier on Macron. Apparently, it's gossip, raw gossip, about Mr. Macron and his uh, personal and intimate affairs, shall we say. Uh, You may recall that Mr. Macron, as a teenager, began to court his teacher in high school, who happened to be married, and then wooed her, and she became his wife. And ever since then, there's been all of this curiosity about their relationship. And I guess that Mr. Trump was going to try to blackmail Mr. (laughs) Macron as a direct result. And certainly that may be why Mr. Macron has been on edge so much lately, not only with regard to Algeria, but recall the sharp words that he exchanged with Liz Truss, the presumed incoming prime minister of Great Britain, uh, who raised questions as to whether or not the France was a true ally, and Mr. Macron gave it back to her as good as he got. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, as always. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 